herzlich willkommen wieder in Berlin. Hello and welcome back to Berlin. This is City Breaks Berlin, episode 13, Film and Cinema. Perhaps a little bit shorter a list than usual of places to visit, although there certainly are going to be some. And to go alongside that, quite a lot of background history and culture about that very revered tradition in Germany, the cinema. We'll have the briefest of looks at some of the early German film pioneers, silent films and whatnot, iconic films like the Fritz Lang ones or Marlene Dietrich's The Blue Angel, and less positively, Leni Riefenstahl's propaganda films, but also a look at the way that from after 1945, German cinema went from strength to strength, such that Berlin now hosts one of the major film festivals, the Berlinale. I went to a couple of places that you can visit, worth mentioning in the context of German film, so I'll be talking about those. And I'm going to do a rundown of the cinemas you can actually visit yourself in Berlin, concentrating on the most spectacular ones. And yes, mentioning what to do if you'd love to go to the cinema in Berlin, but don't speak or understand very much German. So, as a starting point, let's go back to the first half of the 20th century, and mention two women who both made their mark in very, very different ways. I'll start with the more negative of the two, one Leni Riefenstahl, born in 1902, who got into films just as they were becoming a thing, made some short films of her own, and then was commissioned by Hitler himself to make two films for him, both of which are always mentioned in film documentaries made even today. So the first one was called in German, Triumph des Willens, or The Triumph of the Will, which was a documentary study of the Nazi Party, specifically the 1934 Nazi Party Convention, which took place at Nuremberg, and which she was asked to make to unify the party, to introduce their leaders to the German people, to show the world that Nazi power was really something. The opening script sounded like this. 20 years after the outbreak of World War I, 16 years after the beginning of Germany's suffering, 19 months after the beginning of the rebirth of Germany, Adolf Hitler flew to Nuremberg to review his faithful followers. So, presumably that was meant to be stirring stuff, and the pictures which followed showed Hitler's arrival in Germany, descending, if you can believe this, from the heavens. So that gives you a flavour of Triumph des Willens. Perhaps even better known was her next film, called Olympische Spiele in German, Olympia in English, made in 1938, a two-part film on the 1936 Olympic Games. All with Hitler's backing, huge amounts of money were poured into this project, hundreds of people worked on it, and when it was finally ready, there was a Berlin premiere, which Hitler himself attended on his 49th birthday, April the 20th, 1938. Here is the author, Oliver Hilmes, who wrote a book called Berlin 1936, all about the Olympics, describing the scale of the project. Quote, Riefenstahl will eventually receive the enormous sum of 2.8 million Reichsmarks to shoot her film. She herself is initially paid 250,000 marks, a sum that will be increased to 400,000. To conceal the fact that the Reich government has commissioned and is paying for the film, a holding company called Olympiada Film PLC has been formed. Its managing partners are Riefenstahl and her brother Heinz. Some 200 people 
including 45 cameramen, are part of the film crew, and over the course of the games they will shoot around 400,000 metres of celluloid. Riefenstahl has towers constructed and foxholes dug in the Olympic Stadium to capture the action from unusual perspectives. A specially built catapult camera races on tracks alongside the sprinters, yielding unprecedented images. Riefenstahl also uses handheld cameras to get up close to the athletes. She ties other cameras to balloons to get aerial shots, employs underwater equipment for the swimming events and experiments with slow-motion footage. And yes, of course, the main thing to be said about both of these films these days is that they were just full-scale propaganda events. But the films were acclaimed at the time and still are for these camera techniques that were so unusual, for her editing, for the rich musical scores, for the way she managed to portray Germany very beautifully, mountains, oldie-worldie towns, that sort of thing. Lady Riefenstahl was detained by Allied forces at the end of World War II. She was eventually cleared of complicity in Nazi war crimes, but she was blacklisted. So all really a very sorry tale, which contrasts with another lady making her mark at roughly the same time, and that was Marlene Dietrich, who began in silent movies, but made a reputation really in one of the very first talking films, The Blue Angel, shot in 1930 in which she starred as a femme fatale, and which proved hugely popular with German audiences. There was a very high-profile premiere on the Kurfürstendamm in Berlin, at which she appeared in a long white dress, wrapped around with furs, and took six curtain calls. So it all looked, at that moment in 1930, as if Marlene Dietrich was going to be a huge star in Germany. But... Just a few years later, she became one of the many, many authors and actresses and well-known people who fled to the US. She went to Hollywood. By 1937, she had become an American citizen. And it is a measure of the power which she could have wielded in Germany to read that Goebbels and Hitler sent an envoy to America to try and entice her back to Berlin. The message apparently read, The Führer wants you to come home. But she was having none of it. She used her popularity and presence in quite a different way, singing for the troops throughout the war. I think I read somewhere that she was the American GI's most popular entertainer. And I talked about her tours through all those countries from North Africa right through Europe when she sang to audiences of up to 20,000 people in the music episode. So I'm not going to repeat that here. But I did just want to add something which I forgot to mention last time, which is the fact that she never forgot Berlin or Germany. Her mother, in fact, was still in Berlin all through the war. And occasionally she would try and have her say. So once she was broadcasting on the radio, knowing that German soldiers would be able to hear, and she switched to German unexpectedly and said, Jungs, opfert euch nicht. Boys, don't sacrifice yourselves. Der Krieg ist doch scheiße. The war is, I'm sure you know what scheiße means, Hitler ist ein Idiot, idiot. And then she followed that by singing Lily Marlene in German. She's still a huge personality in German culture and in fact features heavily in a permanent exhibition at the first museum which I wanted to mention in this episode, namely the Berlin Film Museum. If you go there, you can see some of her costumes described as follows in the guidebook. Furs and sequins, slits and veils, 
velvet and silk are all combined in glamorous evening gowns intended to emphasize her legs and bosom there's information of course about her work there are documents showing her opposition to the nazi regime definitely an interesting exhibition to look over so moving on to museums then this one is called the museum for film and television it's in the potsdamer platz in central berlin i'll put the link in the show notes and it has a permanent exhibition and then often special exhibitions too and the permanent stuff takes a very through the ages sort of approach so there's lots of old stuff about silent films the marlena dietrich section which i've just mentioned sections on nazi cinema and the post-war period and quite a lot which i think is less accessible to foreigners really on german television if you're a real film buff and interested in the history definitely go to this museum or you might decide to pop in and just look at the big hitters like the marlena dietrich section but if it's film in general and cinema and how it's all done that interests you then i would recommend a different place the babelsberg film studio which is much more popular approach general interest sort of place but also slightly harder to get to because it's not in central berlin it's out in potsdam although that's only a short train ride from berlin so if you get there you will find a film studio which is still a working studio but also a museum almost a theme park really where you can get an exclusive insight into filmmaking and how it's done there are a half a dozen rooms set up on different themes you can watch set painters and carpenters at work you can see costume designers and makeup artists you can tour some film sets there are lots of exhibitions some of them are quite specifically german for example there's material on the popular soap opera called guter zeiten schlechter zeiten good times bad times which might go over the head of your average foreign tourist but lots of other things that certainly won't also you can see stunt men and women in action see how the pyrotechnics are done meet the trainers of animals for films there's the film set of a submarine set up that you can go inside and have your own horror experience if that's your thing and as the information on the website says quote, you can even go to studio 1 and take part in your own tv show as a weather forecaster or stand in presumably in english if that's your preference and of course of course there's an in-house cinema where you can see extracts from films which have been made over the century at babelsberg definitely a recommended day out whether you're in berlin or in potsdam because from either of those you can get there quite easily moving on then to another institution in the berlin film world and that's the berlinale the berlin film festival which was founded in 1951 opening i believe with hitchcock's film rebecca and which is now alongside venice and cannes really one of the big three european film festivals it centers on the potsdamer platz it takes place every year in february you can expect some 400 films to be shown yes there are prizes what else but a golden bear for the best and a silver bear for the runner-up the bear of course being the symbol of berlin and lots of stuff happens at the festival so yes there's the competition and prize winning there's a special short section for up-and-coming filmmakers and there's an event known as berlinale talents a six-day event for young filmmakers with lectures and panel discussions with well-known people from the industry workshops a chance for some coaching perhaps 
just everything they can think of to give young filmmakers a leg up. If you visit Berlin during the film festival, you'll certainly be aware that it's happening, I would say. It centres on the Potsdamer Platz, the Cinema X. Actually, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. When you see it written down, it's Cinema XX. Anyway, it's got 19 screens, but they use two historic cinemas from the rest of the city, so places like the Palast, down on the Kufürstendamm, or a 1960s-built East German cinema called Kino International, juxtaposed with another cinema built in what would have been East Berlin on Alexanderplatz, called the Kubiks. Think ultra-modern. And actually, it's quite easy to take part in your own way. There are tickets for lots of the films available on the night. You simply queue up and buy them. I think you can do it through the website too. And it's just a very exciting atmosphere. Berlin will be full of stars. There are big screens set up here and there showing perhaps interviews with the big names in the current films. You'll find red carpeted events, stars arriving for premieres, that sort of thing. I would definitely recommend, as long as you don't mind being in Berlin in February, when it can be a tad chilly. If you're just near the Potsdamer Platz, then look out too for something called the Boulevard des Stars, so Stars Boulevard, which is along the central bit of Potsdamer Strasse, just in front of the Sony Centre, because that's there to commemorate great German actors from the last 120 years of German-speaking film and TV. So then, there certainly are places to visit in or near Berlin to find out about German film and cinema. But let's not forget the possibility of simply watching some German films, lots of which are available with English subtitles, and I've picked out just a handful of ones focusing particularly on Berlin. If you want to go right back to 1927, you could try watching Fritz Lang's Metropolis, one of the early German silent films released in 1927, which has been talked about ever since. It's probably a bit of a niche interest. It's a vision of a grim, futuristic society. Famous for its stunning visual imagery, said to have been a major influence on science fiction films ever since, and not without messages that say something today. So it centres on a group of people called the industrialists, the haves, if you will, who lead very pleasant lives, supported by the workers, or the have-nots. And there's a love story that reaches across the boundaries and there's lots of subterfuge involving a robot. Plenty of disaster and, as I saw it expressed somewhere, famous today for its stunning visual imagery. I've already mentioned a couple of other early films which you could watch if you want to delve right back into the 1930s, so The Blue Angel and the two Leni Riefenstahl films. And then from the early 1930s, 1931, I think... Very sweet, endearing story, Emile und die Detektive, Emile and the Detectives. Yes, it's a children's film about Emile sent on the train into Berlin to take his grandmother some money, conned out of it by someone he meets on the train, and then arriving in Berlin and getting his gang together to turn detective and find the thief and get the money back. I read one description which said it, quote, creates a splendid picture of bustling life in the capital of Weimar, Germany. You could put it another way and say what it shows is Berlin in poverty. And another detail I came across is really very poignant. So the actor who played Emil, one Rolf Wenkhaus, went on to star, apparently, in Nazi propaganda short films. And in 1942, he was killed because he was flying a bomber, which was shot down. 
Once you know that, I think you'll watch the film and see all the other kids in Emile's gang and wonder what happened to the actors who represented them just a few years later when their country went to war. Let's fast forward a few decades to the 1980s when another iconic German film, Wings of Desire, came out, showing two angels gliding through the streets of Berlin, observing the population, just watching, not interacting with anyone, until, of course, one of them falls in love with a real person. Notable, yes, certainly for its plot, but also particularly because of the views you get of Berlin. It opens, for example, with an aerial view of the city, as it was when it was divided between East and West, bearing the scars of the destruction of World War II. The vast empty space around the Potsdamer Platz, which couldn't be rebuilt because the Berlin Wall was standing in the way. It was shot in locations all around Berlin. You'll see, for example, the Siegersäule, the Victory Column. You'll see Potsdamer Platz, yes. You'll see U-Bahn stations, lots of shots of the wall, although there is one scene set in the death strip just beside the wall, which was built as a film set. I think in 1985, no one was taking their film cameras into the death strip with East German guards watching on. So definitely a film to recommend if you want to see Berlin in that period. From 1998, there is Run, Lola, Run, a quite interesting story set very much on the streets of Berlin, so of interest of anyone who wants to see that and notable particularly for its technique, which was, I think, a first in filmmaking. So this is the story of Lola, who desperately needs a large amount of money very soon to save her boyfriend, who's fallen in with some hardened criminals and has made the mistake of leaving a lot of their money on a U-Bahn. So it shows her racing through the streets of Berlin to the bank where her father works because she's going to plead with him to help them out. What's unusual about it, though, is that the story is told three times. Each runs for about 20 minutes, I think, and each one shows that tiny little changes had a huge impact. So there's a moment, for example, when Lola's running past a side street from which a car is emerging. In one version, she leaps up onto the bonnet and over and carries on. In another version, the timing's just seconds different and it knocks her over. So these things happen all through the film and, of course, three different stories emerge. And all the while you are racing through 1980s Berlin and getting a feel for the atmosphere. And then moving into the 21st century from 2003, a film which was talked about way beyond the German borders, both because of its subject matter and because of the way it was shot and the themes behind it. And that's Goodbye Lenin a story set in October 1989, so just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, in the eastern half of Berlin. It tells about the Kerner family, particularly the mum, Christiana, who's a loyal party member. She's been running youth groups for them for decades. And her son and daughter who live with her, Alex the son particularly, is moving more towards the protest side of things. And he attends an anti-communist rally where mum happens to see him and is so horrified and shocked that she falls into a coma. Result, when she wakes up, she doesn't know that the Berlin Wall has fallen. The doctors tell the family that she mustn't have any shocks. And so they decide to pretend that nothing has happened. Communism still exists. And this is a framework in which to show the two different lifestyles in the city and the atmosphere at that hugely heady time of the fall of the wall 
and discuss a little bit the pros and cons of living in each half of the city. Really, quite a light-hearted film in some ways, but which captures the mood of 1989 Berlin and raises lots of the issues that came about because of the fall of the wall. From the same year, 2003, another much less well-known film called Rosenstrasse, but accessible because it is available with English subtitles, and that tells the story, which I think I recounted in the Holocaust and Remembrance episode, about the women of Rosenstrasse who staged a protest in the 1940s because they were all married to secular Jews who'd been arrested and were threatened with internment. And it's a film that unleashed a lot of controversy in Germany itself. Some people were saying, how can you possibly make a film about the Holocaust? Films are entertainment. The Holocaust is the most terrible topic of our times. And others who thought that really explaining the horrors of the Holocaust via a popular form of entertainment that would be seen by lots of people was a good way to reach out, particularly to young people who perhaps didn't know the story very well. And then following that, in 2004, another film that was much talked about, Downfall, or Der Untergang in German, which shows the last days of Adolf Hitler spent in his bunker in central Berlin. It's told through the eyes of a real person, Traudl Junge, who was the young girl chosen by Hitler to be his secretary, who later wrote her memoirs, and those are the basis for the story that's told here. It opens very dramatically with four young women being flown to an unnamed airfield where it turns out Hitler himself is waiting to interview them and choose whom he'd like to have working for him as his secretary. So the story is told through Traudeljunger's eyes, which is interesting because she was very young, I think 19, when she first started working for Hitler. So you see everything through this gradually dawning realisation that terrible things were happening. It doesn't deal with the whole period that she worked for Hitler. It just captures those last few days, the claustrophobia down in the bunker, the growing realisation of Traudl herself and many of the others who were still with Hitler in his last few days, that he was mad. It was in fact the first film in which a German actor portrayed Hitler, Bruno Gantz. It's a gripping watch from start to finish. And it ends with a very moving interview, a postscript interview, with Traudl Junge herself, by this time of course an elderly lady, saying that yes, she was very young and didn't know what she was getting into, but also that she felt she should have reacted differently. She cites Sophie Scholl, the Munich student who was executed for opposing Hitler's views in public, and Traudl Junge explains that finding out about Sophie made her realise that she too should have shown more insight and perhaps more courage. By the way, there's an excellent film about the Sophie Scholl story called Sophie Scholl, The Last Days, which I'm not mentioning here in any detail because it's set in Munich, but which I would highly recommend. From 2006, another German film that attracted worldwide acclaim, The Lives of Others. Set again in mainly East Berlin, telling how the East German regime installed a party member secretly in the attic of a writer's house to spy on him and try and catch him out in anti-regime behaviour. It shows how the writer and his actress girlfriend try to lead fulfilling lives despite the regime. It shows the choices they have to make. And it shows the effect on the Stasi officer too. He leads a very lonely existence and here he is 
spying on people who were much happier, which makes him begin to question some of the rules under which he's forced to live. It's very good on life under the Stasi. There's a scene where the Stasi let themselves into the flat, for example, to bug it, and then bang on the neighbour's doors and remind her that she has seen nothing and that they know that her daughter's hoping to study medicine, the implicit threat being, of course, that that won't be happening if she says anything. And the director, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, made a point of using as many props as possible from the actual Stasi era, so you can see their recording equipment, for example, and lots of other things which they borrowed from museums and collectors. I read that the props master working on the film had actually spent two years in a Stasi prison and insisted on absolute authenticity in every aspect of the filming. The Lives of Others won an Oscar as the best foreign language film of its year, and it was described in that erudite publication Rotten Tomatoes as, quote, an unforgettable masterpiece. And finally then, from 2016, Alone in Berlin, based on the Hans Fallada novel with the same title, a story of an elderly couple whose son was killed in World War II and who then decide that they will exact their revenge by posting anti-Nazi messages secretly all over Berlin. I have to confess I haven't actually seen that film. I have watched all the others I've just mentioned. But I have read the book, and it is a depressing read about the difficulties of life in Berlin under the Nazi regime and the dangers of trying to dissent and the problems of not knowing who you could trust and who you couldn't. I would say it really captures the dilemmas and fears of the era, so I'm imagining the film does the same. And just to finish on a couple of other films that you could watch for A Flavour of Berlin, which are in fact not German films at all, but were made in English. If you want a flavour of Berlin in the jazz era, then the 1972 film Cabaret is a good watch, set against the rise of the Nazis. And if you haven't seen it and are wondering if it's perhaps a very feel-good sort of film, here's an extract from a review I found, which will put you straight on that. The bright manic glee is countered by small moments of stunning brutality, moments that increase in frequency, size and viciousness as the film progresses. And from much more recently, 2015 in fact, Bridge of Spies, a Cold War film, again set mainly in Berlin, based on a true story about a US pilot shot down and captured by the Soviet Union and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And then there's the New York lawyer recruited by the CIA to try and secure his release through engineering a prisoner exchange. Edge of your seat stuff, said by those who know to be a realistic account of Berlin spying circles and American-Soviet relations. And a grand finale which takes place on, yes, the Bridge of Spies. That is the Glinikerbrücke out at the Wannsee, so one of the lakes just outside the city which was indeed the scene of real-life spying operations and prisoner exchanges during the war, and which was used as the setting for the filming of the last few scenes, where the tension builds and builds as you wonder whether the prisoner exchange is going to be successful. The IMDb review opens like this. A feel-good Cold War melodrama, Bridge of Spies is an absorbing true-life espionage tale, very smoothly handled by old pros who know what they're doing. And in case you're not aware, I might just add that the old pros include Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. 
So, so much then for a rundown of German films you might usefully watch if you want to see some glimpses of Berlin. And I'd like to finish the episode by just going through some of the cinemas, actual cinemas you can visit in Berlin if you want to just, you know, go and see a film. And let me start by saying that, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Visit Berlin website is an absolute treasure. They have a section, which I'll put in the show notes, on cinemas, all written in English, which opens like this. Berlin is a cinephile's dream city, thanks to its countless multiplexes, art house cinemas and independent spaces that offer cinema goers everything from blockbusters to classics, silent films, retrospectives and foreign language films. It gives details of several independent cinemas which will screen original English language films. It tells you which are the ultra-modern multiplexes, which are the iconic Art Deco original cinemas from a hundred years ago and is generally a mine of information. Let me just mention then a few cinemas which might be of interest to you. First of all, the strangely named Cinema XX at Potsdamer Platz, where there are, wait for it, 19 different screens, which will certainly show all the latest blockbusters with state-of-the-art technology when required. Sometimes in versions labelled VO, which stands for Original Version, and means that if it's an English film, they'll be showing it in English. Then there's the Odeon Cinema, which also shows films in the original English, where appropriate. If you want something a bit artier, try the Kulturbrauerei. I'll put the link to that in the notes as well. A modern multiplex cinema, but built in a historic listed brick building, converted and in an area of town with a vibrant nightlife scene, so you can make an evening of it. If it's luxury you're after, then try the Astor Film Lounge, where, quote, cinema visit becomes an experience. The Astor Film Lounge is a cinema for refined taste, with comfortable, adjustable leather seats, some even with footrests, and drinks and snacks. That too is in a heritage cinema, renovated to show off its history, but possessing too the latest technology and having a really ambitious programme. Then there are a couple of open-air cinemas that you might fancy. One out at Spandau, where you can sit in the courtyard of the Spandau Stadtbibliothek, the city library, under the cherry trees and watch films, safe in the knowledge that should the weather be bad, the screening will be not cancelled, but moved indoors to the nearby Kulturhaus. And secondly then, there's the Balcon Kino, balcony cinema, which stages cinema weekends where you can watch several films over a weekend and there'll be live music too in between. People in the surrounding buildings can watch from their balconies. Visitors can set up in front of the screen and the whole thing is free. I think only on certain weekends, so that needs researching before you go, with the link which I will provide. OK then, so I hope I've painted a picture of Berlin as a place very connected to cinema somewhere where some of the best German films have been made, certainly somewhere where you can learn about cinema today, for example at the Babelsberg Museum or the German Film Museum, and also the setting for some of the most iconic German films, not to mention one of Europe's best-known film festivals. That rounds off today's episode, and just to mention quickly that the next episode, hopefully in two weeks' time, is going to be called Jewish Berlin, because when I was writing the Holocaust episode, I very much felt that that story had to be told on its own. 
and centre around places like the Holocaust Memorial, but I also came to understand how many other places there are in Berlin connected to its Jewish history, which I didn't mention. So, they're going to get their own episode. Synagogues, cemeteries, museums, including one of Berlin's most renowned museums, the Jewish Museum, and, as ever, a little bit of background history and culture. I hope you'll join me for that, and meanwhile, would like to just sign off in German, as ever, by thanking you for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. Goodbye. Auf Wiederhören. Musik